That's one of two times in this podcast you'll hear the University of Connecticut fight song. Most of the guests in the show will have nothing in common with the host, that's me, aside from our obvious connection of being born in the same year. Today is one of two exceptions to that. In a few weeks, we'll visit with Travis Knight, who played basketball at UConn from 1992 to 1996, the same years I was there as an undergrad. One of the things I copped to in that interview was that I picked UConn basically because I was an obsessive college basketball fan at the time. To be fair, I got what I came for. The teams Travis played on were very good, nationally ranked, just missed out on the Final Four a few times. But as it turned out, the most exceptional, you could even say historic basketball I got to see in those four years, was played by the women. Our guest today, Jamel Elliott, was right in the middle of that history. The forward entered UConn the same year I did, and by the time she left, had played a central role in securing the school's first national championship in 1995, a year they finished 35-0, made the cover of Sports Illustrated, and put women's college basketball on the map. As I mentioned in the interview, that year, 94-95, was really formative for me in terms of what would become a career in sports media. That was before I decided that my future was behind the scenes, and it was the first time uh, someone put me on air. It was where I learned there's no cheering on press row, how to run a board, and as you'll hear, the first and only time I've ever been yelled at by a Hall of Fame basketball coach. Jamel was very insightful and generous with her time. Um, as, has been, as has been the case with all of these interviews so far, we talked about a wide range of topics, including the legend she played for before Gino, uh, growing up in the murder capital of the world in the 1980s, the growth of the women's game, and one of the most impactful moments in her life, one she shares with our first guest in this series, Jason Lockenfora. Remember, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Study of Sport or by visiting my website, studyofsport.com. Here's my interview with Jamel Elliott. In uh, January or February of 1995, I was a junior at the University of Connecticut and an aspiring broadcaster. UConn did not have a school of broadcast journalism, so in order to learn my trade, I started working at WHUS, which was and is the student-run radio station on campus. They broadcast all the football, men's and women's basketball, men's and women's soccer games. And unlike attending a school like Syracuse or Northwestern, where everyone wants to be the next Bob Costas, I was only competing with like two or three other people to be part of these broadcasts and was more or less immediately thrown into the mix as a color commentator at first and then was allowed to do play by play in short order. I'll admit that the real draw for me at the time was getting to do men's games, but that season it turned out the real story would be the women's team. It was an experience that was formative for me in sports media. We even got to go on road trips. And one of those trips took us on a two-game swing to Georgetown and then St. John's on the way back. And the thing that I want to express about that season is that a lot of these games were frequently out of hand before they even started. I remember one in particular against Morgan State that UConn won 107-27. to And we were not professionals so when it was you know 38 to 6 midway through the first half we sort of ran out of stuff to talk about and during the georgetown game we apparently strayed into some what i would imagine is but i don't really remember fairly mild criticism of the team and someone who knew the head coach gino oriyama heard this and told him and he did not like it and as we sat on our equipment outside of carnesecca arena which is where st john's plays waiting for the doors to open for the second game of this road trip the team bus pulled up, the door opened, Coach Oriyama got out, made a beeline for us, and spent the next five minutes dressing us down. At the time, it was disconcerting, but now it's kind of cool that I've been yelled at by one of the greatest coaches, not just in women's college basketball history, but in college basketball history, period. 
Our guest today, I'm sure, I'm guessing, knows what it feels like to be scolded by Gino Oriema. Jamel Elliott was a starter on that 94-95 team that would go undefeated and deliver the first of what is now up to 11 national titles. She went on to be an assistant under Oriema from 97 to 2009, the head coach at Cincinnati till 2018, and is now back in stores as the associate athletic director for the National Sea Club, an organization of former student-athletes, UConn student-athletes, and uh, managers, and the honor that... Um, that honors the school's past achievements, provides networking opportunities, volunteer opportunities, among other things. Jamel, thanks for joining me today. Thanks for having me. I appreciate you inviting me on. So Coach Ariema is famous for knowing how to get the best out of his players, sometimes by being really hard on them. I'm interested in, I've always wondered how that relationship changes when you stop being a student athlete. How has your relationship changed with Coach when you're no longer a student athlete and you're, well, in your case, you're an assistant, but you're an adult and no longer in the program. Well, I mean, I would say that Coach Arama plays a lot of roles uh, in my life currently. So we definitely, have a, you know, our relationship has evolved. Um, like you mentioned, you know, it started off um, in a recruiting process where, you know, he was recruiting me to come to UConn and was trying to sell me his dreams. And even back then, he spoke very clearly about his goals um, and what he wanted to achieve here. And winning the national championship was um, at the forefront of his mind all the way back in 1991, 1992. Um, so it evolved from um, me deciding to uh, come to UConn after being recruited by him and Chris Daly to me being a player where basically you know I became a part of his team and he became um, my coach and basically it, it, the relationship was what he asked me to do I did it um, you know it was a situation back then times have changed now where when your coach asked you to do something you didn't ask any questions you did it um, believing that he had your best interest in mind and that he was asking you to do the things he was asking you do to do in order to be the best player the best person the best student you can be um, obviously, uh, I graduated from being one of his players uh, to uh, now he was my boss. Um, so from coach, head coach to actual boss and, and paying uh, my salary. And, 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 and I, I was able to transition into that role um, and look at him as more of a, not necessarily a, a boss, but more of a mentor um, as I started my career in becoming uh, a college women's basketball coach. So he played that role uh, for 12 years. And within those 12 years, while I was an assistant, we definitely transitioned into um, more of a friendship. You know, I stayed, you know, I got really close with his family and his kids and his wife. And, um, you know, being from Washington, D.C., I didn't have any family here. So um, it ended up evolving into, you know, him being kind of like a, a second father to me. And then, you know, once I thought professionally it was time for me to move on and, and run my own program and become a head coach, um, he became um, a confidant, you know, for me, you know, sharing with him, you know, some of my fears, why I'm ready, why I think I'm not ready, whether I should do it, whether I should do it or not do it. Um, so he, he played that role and really giving me advice on my career path moving forward. And then when I went to become the head coach at Cincinnati, we became um, opponents um, mm. and competitors against each other. So that was a different role that it took me a while to get used to and, um, I would like to put on record that even though I was one of his former players and staff members, he did not 
um, take it lightly on me or my team because of that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, he proceeded to not necessarily beat me as bad as you mentioned against we would play at Morgan uh, State, but I, uh, obviously I didn't have any success against him. Um, so then we became competitors while at the same time being friends where there was anything that I was going through. He was the first person that I called. And then now even transitioning back to um, UConn and stores um, in an administrative role, you know, I didn't, I don't make any decision, any decision, and I probably won't at this point professionally um, make any decisions before um, I have a conversation with them. So, you know, it now it becomes competitors to now I'm back and now we are coworkers in a lot of ways. Um, but now, ultimately, from a personal standpoint, um, I consider him as family. I want to go back to the first role you talked about, which was it was recruitment of you. One of the things I like, one of the first questions I like to ask on this podcast to people is for them to talk about where they grew up. You're from Washington, D.C. What what neighborhood in Washington did you grow up in and what was it like there? Um, and what role did sports and sports fandom play in your life as a young person? Well, sports was everything to me. You know, for me, I, I, I say this story all the time when I'm speaking in front of long group, uh, large groups or small groups or individuals that ask me questions about the sport of basketball. Basketball kept me um, out of trouble in a lot of ways or succumbing to my environment. Um, I grew up in the inner city of Washington, D.C., where, um, you know, I was in a housing project and, you know, the the options were you sell drugs, you get pregnant, you're out here, you know, gangbanging and shooting people or robbing people, or you're playing sports. And I've been blessed that, you know, I chose the outlet to play sports on the playground. We had a basketball court, and that's where I spent most of my time. And it got to the point where the people in my environment, you know, they started to look out for me. You know, don't leave her alone. She plays basketball. You know, let, you know she plays for her school. It almost like my peers, even though they weren't doing the right thing, they really appreciated the fact that I was trying to do the right thing. And they, in a lot of ways, protected me from um, what was going on in my environment. So just to give you an idea of my history and, and, the, and the fact that I feel like I owe the sport of basketball uh, my life in a lot of ways. And I was a first-generation college attendee and graduate. So, you know, I was able to do that because of basketball because I know for a fact there was no way financially that I would be able to um, pay for schooling uh, without sports being involved in my life. And it's a funny story how Gino saw me. I wasn't on the, you know, main circuit recruiting wise from an AU tournament. He was in Washington, D.C. to attend a bigger AU, AU tournament that had over 300 teams um, in a tournament. And he was here for that. And it just so happened that he was really good friends with Pat Knapp, who was the head coach at Georgetown at the time. Um, and Pat, who was local, he knew about different uh, summer leagues and different things going in the area. And at the time I was playing in the summer league for my high school team and Gino tagged along with Pat because he was recruiting somebody, I guess that I, I, my team was playing against. And Gino um, just happened to be in the gym attending a game at the end of the night before they head out to dinner. Um, and that's kind of why, where he sold me for the first, very first time. Um, otherwise I wouldn't even have been uh, on Coach Ariyama's radar. You, you play for Bob Hedden, correct? That is correct. At yep. H.D. Woodson. So I have to admit, I'm a, like a little bit embarrassed when I was researching to do this interview that I had never heard of him. And I'm embarrassed because his list of accomplishments is unbelievable. He was the head coach at H.D. Woodson High School, where you attended high school. He coached the, the football team, obviously the men's football team and the women's basketball team. And I think the women's the softball team as well. 
He was uh, 284 and 89 and won seven city titles as a football coach, coached 18 future NFL players, including Byron Leftwich. Um, He was 637 and 98 as a women's basketball coach and won 17 public school titles and two city titles. Those are like Gino Oriema type numbers. Um, He must have been an incredibly influential person in your early life. Well, he, my, I had a cousin, an uh, older cousin. Her name is Adrian Elliott, and she played for Bob Hedden prior to me playing for him. Um, and one of the reasons why I started playing basketball is because I had an older female cousin who played it, and naturally you tend to, you know, look up to your older cousins in your family. And Coach Hedden had a camp that he did in the summers, um, and his players worked the camp. And my cousin, you know, told uh, Coach Hadden about me, and I went to work the camp, and, uh, you know, the rest is history. And I was, uh, at the time, I was only 10 years old. So I started going to his camp in the summers starting when I was 10. Um, back, I'm, I'm looking back on it now, that was probably illegal recruiting <laughs> <laughs> for the high school level. Um, but uh, the rest is history. I ended up playing high school for him after my cousin did. And, um, you know, in my three years there, I think we may have lost two games um, in my career. So he had a long history of making sure that his girls, you know, achieve. We had to have a 3.0. A lot of his players went on to Division One schools um, across the country prior to us getting there as student athletes. So we knew that we had a chance to go to college if we, you know, believed in Coach Hedden. So I would say that he was definitely um, played that role of Coach Ariama to me before uh, I got here to UConn. And, and obviously, you know, I, I gained another mentor um, in Coach Arama. but I still see, speak to Bob Hedden to this day. We spoke uh, probably about a month ago. He started the scholarship in his name at H.D. Woodson, and obviously I want to support that in any way that I can. Um, but, yeah, we still stay in contact, and, and you're right. He, he played a huge influence, uh, a part in, in my career, and, and me, you know, again, staying off the streets and making sure I was in camps and giving me rides to and from camps and to and from school every day if I needed it to make sure I did what I was supposed to do. Because you did not. H.D. Woodson was not – was that the high school in your neighborhood or did you, it was like an hour away or something, right? Yeah, I had to um, catch two, sometimes three buses, depending on if I was late, <laughs> yeah. um, to get to H.D. Um, but, you know, it was something that – it was a commitment that I'm glad I made. Um, it was the right choice for me. Right At that time, I was living in southeast D.C., and H.D. Woodson is located in northeast D.C., which is in a different quadrant of the city. Um, so I took city transportation every day to and from school. Um, and like I mentioned, those days where I missed the bus, you know, he made sure that I got to school and I got home um, when I needed it. You mentioned how there's a certain amount of jeopardy for someone that was in your position um, living in Washington at the time, which was, I mean, even a very different city than it is now. You, people probably remember it was known widely as the murder capital of the world. It was a really, really tough place. Um, and how basketball saved you from that. But what is talk about the importance of not just the game, because you can play the game every day uh, for hours, but without a person like Bob Hedden, who, who sort of grabs you by the scruff of the neck and, and makes sure you get where you need to go, the people inside the sport are probably, I mean, they're almost certainly more important than the sport itself, right? Well, 
absolutely. You know, you have coaches out here that just coach because they want to supplement their teacher's salary and they don't really invest in the kids. They just want to get an extra paycheck. Um, luckily, I had a high school coach that he was invested in something other than getting an extra paycheck in, in addition to the job that he was doing as a teacher. Um, but not only, you know, I had that in high school, but I also played for AAU coach Bertha Bell, um, who did the same thing when we weren't in the high school season. And she made sure we got into um, summer leagues in the summer, even though we couldn't afford to travel with the, AA, the national AAU tournaments. We did go to different places. I had my first experience traveling out of Washington, D.C. with my AAU team. We went two hours north to go play in a tournament in Philadelphia. So um, I think, you know, it takes a tribe, you know, to, to, to raise um, kids. And, and luckily, outside of my parents, although I had both my parents at home, I had coaches out there um, that believed in me and knew that there was something else out there outside of the environment that was in that I was in. And they gave me the tools and the um, ability to explore some of those things, which, you know, once I was exposed to it and I knew it was out there, it made it easier for me to stay on the course of making sure I had a 3.0, making sure that I didn't miss school, making sure that I attended the practices and utilize sports as an opportunity for me to not only stay in trouble, uh, stay out of trouble, but also to hopefully propel me to be able to attend college free of charge. And that came to fruition. And I have um, people like Bob Hedden and my AU coach and my parents to thank for that. So we know a bit about you as a player. What were you like as a fan growing up? Were you, did you follow local teams? Were you a Bullets fan? Were you fans of teams outside of Washington? Was your, what were the, I, mean, I imagine, because my bedroom was like this growing up and we're the same age, that mine was covered in posters. Was your bedroom covered in basketball posters? What kind of a fan were you at that time? Um, well, my dad was a huge Washington Redskins fan, so I had to be a Redskins fan. We was obviously a big Bullets fan back in the days of Wes Unseld and Phil Chenier and those guys when we was actually winning some championships. Um, so it was easy for me to cheer for the teams that were local growing up because we were winning. Um, but I will say from a basketball perspective and my favorite player, the posters that I had on my wall was of Ohio, uh, of Isaiah Thomas and the uh, uh, the Pistons back in the bad boy days and the Dennis Rodman's of the world. Um, so I became a big Detroit Piston fan with my favorite player being Isaiah Thomas. So he was the guy that made the posters in my room. Um, and I became a longtime Isaiah fan. And then obviously as I started to play and my game evolved in the type of player um, that I was on the court, I really started to admire uh, Dennis Rodman and what he did outside of scoring the basketball you know, playing defense, taking charges, um, bringing the energy to the team, rebounding the ball. Um, so I, I, I tended to take a liking to him because I liked the way he played the game because it was similar to the way I played it. Did you – now it's young girls playing sports have a lot of choices of female athletes to admire. Did you have – were there female athletes that you admired growing up or were a fan of growing up? Well, growing up from a basketball perspective, you have to remember we didn't have the WNBA, the ABL, or any of those professional leagues. So it was more of a college thing. And, you know, like I mentioned, I had a cousin um, who played high school ball. So she was kind of somebody I looked up to just from a local standpoint. Nationally, I didn't have anybody on my radar. 
Um, I did remember back in the day Ann Donovan when she was, you know, the close down at Old Dominion University, um, which was fairly close um, to Washington and the University of Maryland when, they, you know, Vicki Bullitt and, and those years that they had with Chris Weller out there being the women's coach at the University of Maryland in College Park. Um, but it was, I must admit, back when I was growing up, it was more so because I was exposed more on television it was the men that you looked up to. But then, you know, things evolved. You know, you had the ABL come into the league, uh, they come into existence here in the United States. They didn't last. Um, but then the WNBA, who's, I think, you know, I think their tenure, I think we we're going on 14, 15 years now with the WNBA in existence. And I remember Cheryl Swoops coming out with her first women's sneaker, which was a huge deal um, for us as women who play sports and had to buy, buy men's basketball shoes. Uh, player shoes all the time and I have the option to buy a women's shoe so um, I think that started to evolve as I was older um, and already an adult but I think it's great for the young girls out there today to have to to have the opportunity to have people that they are exposed to that are female and look like them um, that they can look up to and have posters on their uh, walls and, and wear their jerseys to to represent the female uh, athletes that are out there and visible um, in all the sports, most of the sports, at least nowadays. We've alluded to how much women's sports in this country have changed since you were at UConn. I have a memory of going to a game in 1993. Um, you played Vermont and people, well, I'm from Vermont, which is why I was interested, but people probably don't remember now that at the time, Vermont had a really great women's basketball program. They had gone two consecutive seasons without losing a regular season game. Uh, they were coached by a woman who I am sorry to say tragically passed away recently, Kathy uh, Inglis, who went on to coach at Boston uh, College. And I remember going to that game. It probably maybe was at 7 o'clock or 7.30. It was a weekday game. I probably left my room at 6.30, walked in the front door, flashed my ID, went down to the front row, sat down and watched the game and left. You cannot do that now. And soon after this happened, you could not do that. The the sort of explosion, not only of women's basketball in general, but UConn women's basketball is just, you know, two years later, the place was packed every game and it's been packed every game since. And I wonder how you how you view that and how you when you went to UConn and you were you know offered a scholarship, were you thinking what was your were you thinking that this could be the rest of your life in basketball? Or were you thinking, um, I just, I, this is a great opportunity for me to get a degree and then get a job in quote unquote, the real world. Was there any idea at that time in your mind that I can do this, something related to this for the rest of my life? My mindset was, I was recruited by a lot of colleges around the Washington DC area. And I knew I needed to get away from home. And and so I looked at this opportunity as an 18-year-old um, coming here to have the opportunity to get a college degree and hopefully have that be um, a great way for me to go out into the real world to start my professional life. So I looked at it more as an opportunity. Um, and while me still getting a free education, um, people forget the year before I got there, they, UConn women's basketball had gone to the Final Four. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I feel like that 1991 team is not spoken of enough or don't get enough credit for, yes, they, was, they weren't in the first national championship team, but in 1991, they went to the Final Four. So I came in 1992, so that was a big um, reason why I came was because, you know, they just became 
the year prior, they were one of the top four teams in the nation at the end of the season. So that was a huge um, sell for me. But when I came here, to go back to your story, when you was able to just, you know, show up at a game, show your ID and sit in the front row, I remember up into that 1995 team where we would have games at 7 o'clock during the week and we would have during the game, I'm on the court, and you can just see up, and this is how empty Gamble was at the time, the whole football team walking through Gamble on the concourse, um, leaving study hall. Yeah. So, and that just goes to show you that, I mean, we were really an afterthought. I didn't say sit down and watch for a while. They needed, they passed through Gamble because they needed to get on the other side to be able to go to their study hall facility. So, it was a situation where I had no idea that it was going to explode the way it did. And, you know, credit to, you know, in order to be on the top of a mountain, you have to knock somebody off. So credit to the University of Tennessee and um, Pat Head Summit for, you know, scheduling UConn on January, Martin Luther King Day of, of 1995, because I think um, that day was a pivotal point in UConn women's basketball history where, our fans knew the number one team in the country was coming into town. They decided that we was going to go, they was going to come and support our team. At the time, we were undefeated. I mean, we had no idea we was going to be undefeated at that point going into that game, Martin Luther King Day, against the number one team in the country. But I feel like everything just lined up in a very, very special way um, in order for that day to happen. And obviously for us to win that game was when we really took off into the stratosphere as far as um, people around not only the state, but around the country, knowing that there's a women's basketball team in Storrs, Connecticut, um, now that we look back, that's here to stay. You went on that season. You finished undefeated. You won the national championship. You beat Tennessee in the national championship game. Um, Jen Rosati was on the, and Rebecca Lobo were on the cover of Sports Illustrated. I still have that uh, issue at home. Um, and since then, it's been sort of a rocket ship ride for UConn. Um, basketball I wonder do you think looking back on your interaction with fans and you guys I think one of the things people really liked about the women's basketball team especially back then was the sort of accessibility that you guys I think had a sort of a friendly more accessible um, attitude or you know that, that fans felt like they could walk up to you a little easier and talk to you do you think fans of either women's basketball or women's sports have changed over the years is there more of an edge to them now or is there more of a tendency you know like men's fans to be negative or and things like that or have they have they evolved as the sport has evolved or or not um i mean i think i mean i can go back to my experience and speak on my experience you know we were accessible because you know, the fans were able to be down on the bot, you know, the lower bowl, the true fans were able to be down on the lower bowl and, you know, hang around after the game and have access to us. And, you know, we were like their nieces or granddaughters where they felt like they knew who we were and they could come up and hug and kiss us and touch us and feel us and love us and, you know, just share with us how much we meant to them. I think as the success happened, um, you know, with, you know, the business of college athletics where you're now getting season tickets in and people want great seats and order gets great seats, you know, you have to pay a different price and things like that where I think that connection has been lost because of, you know, that that part of it. Um, but I think I know UConn women's basketball from what I've seen and being back here for a year after being gone nine years, I think that's one of the things that makes 
of the program great is they still find time to be accessible to the fans. Now, based on compliance issues and the different things, how in, in different ways college athletics exchange, um, you know, because of the notoriety of the players, you know, obviously you have people out here that are, you know, having you sign things or balls or posters, and now all of a sudden it's showing up on eBay and they're trying to take advantage monetarily. So I think there needed to be some type of um, boundaries in place so that we could, you know, make it so that what it was back in 92, 93, 94, 95, 91 even, where it was true, genuine love and not, you know, one access to take it, you know, take advantage of the access. So I think it's involved in that way where, you know, with success comes, you know, different motives from a fan's perspective. But I think the UConn women's team and program does a great job of maintaining um, a relationship with their, you know, true, true and genuine supporters. Before I let you go, I got to ask you two business questions. One sure. is, I think I would be remiss if I didn't get your comment on this summer, the U.S. women's national team, the soccer team, um, were all over the news, uh, both for winning the World Cup in France and also because of their ongoing um, legal fight with the U.S. Soccer Federation over getting equal pay. I, I wonder where you come down on that. Obviously, in, in college athletics, you have something called Title IX, which essentially legislates a certain amount of, of uh, equality between men and women on a college campus. But in the market, when, when you're talking about the market outside of college athletics, it's a little more complicated. How do you see that, um, that issue of, that's, that's been brought up this, this summer with the U.S. Women's National Team? I, my my thoughts on it is I hope they capitalize on it right now because at the end of the day, when you're bargaining for increased pay or a salary increase, you have to have leverage. And I think right now, I think the women's soccer organization specifically has more leverage coming to the table in order to have that change um, and what they're asking for. And I'm not an expert on what they're asking for, but I have to believe that the leverage that they have when in the World Cup, you know, having sold out arenas, the, the merchandise that's selling, um, just everything around that that would allow a commodity to be maximized, I think they have all that to bring to the table in order to hopefully get some of the things that they're asking for from a compensation standpoint. So that's my comment on that. Hopefully it comes to pass, but I would love to see us, um, you know, become a environment and world where it's not about okay the women needs to be paid exactly what the men paid in any one of whether it's in sports or if it's in private sector or corporate america i hope one day we are paid what we're entitled to based on what we do no matter what gender it is because you know what's to say that one day you know the men the women shouldn't be making more than the men in, in one sector based on what their value is and what they bring to the table so it shouldn't be equal to the men, I think it should be what you deserve, no matter whether you're a man, a man or a woman. Um, last question. When we, when we talked about your fandom growing up in Washington, we didn't talk about college sports, but you were living in Washington in the eighties. Washington is where Georgetown university is. And, and the big East at that time was the most powerful conference in college basketball the most exciting conference in college basketball i'm sure you were it was in your on your radar as a kid growing up um, how exciting is it i know for me as a yukon alum i am 
very happy that that the Huskies are going back to the Big East. How how exciting is it for you? Well, yeah, like you mentioned, I grew up watching Patrick Ewan and David Wingate and Reggie Williams and all those Chris Smith, all those great Georgetown Hoya players. And then, you know, down the road, Lynn Bias came up, and then you had to be a Lynn Bias fan because he was just one of those athletes that, you know, doesn't come around very often. So, um, and then to come here as a student athlete in 1992 as a member of the Big East Conference and leaving here as a member of the Big East Conference. And even when I went to Cincinnati, um, we were in the Big East Conference. So um, I am extremely excited from an alumni perspective, um, from an administrative perspective, from a fans perspective, because I don't think our fans have ever gotten over the true Husky fans um, of the both sports of men's and women's basketball have ever gotten over the fact that we left the Big East um, and went to the AAC. So I think the mood around the state, um, if season tickets is any indication of that, is that um, I think some of the fans that may have jumped off or not wasn't as active as being a fandom as you, a fan, as you say, um, I think they're going to get involved based on the history um, and the rivalries and the competitions and the, you know, the, I mean, talk about blood, sweat, and tears. I mean, it was literally blood, blood, sweat, and tears back in those days when the Georgetowns and the St. John's and um, Providence is even back in the day and on the men's basketball side, you know, that was true war that they did out on the court. And it, I think the fans are going to be happy to hopefully get back to some, seeing some of that basketball. And not only that, hopefully the fans can travel. You know, I remember back when I was here as a student athlete and as an assistant coach, you know, we had, you know, bus trips to Providence where you had six, seven, eight, nine, ten buses busing down to Providence um, or Seton Hall or St. John's where, you know, you don't have to just come to stores. You know, we, we, we would appreciate and I think the teams would appreciate the fact that getting back to our fans traveling now because we have more schools that will be playing that is in driving distance. Okay, I lied. This is the last question, only because you mentioned him. Um, one of the interviews I did for this podcast was with Jason Lockenfora. I don't know if you're familiar with him. He's a, a reporter for CBS Sports, an NFL reporter. He's from Baltimore. And when I asked him about some of the most impactful sport, not sporting events, but impactful things that happened to him as a sports fan, as a kid, the first thing he brought up was Len, the death of Len Bias. What oh, do you man. what do you remember about the death of Len Bias and how did it impact you? Uh, as, as that would have been 1986, something like that. So in 1986, I was 12 years old, and you know, as you when you have a life or as you get as become an adult, there's different events in your life that you'll never forget where you were when that happened. You know, for my dad and mom it was when you know jfk or Martin Luther king got shot or you know whatever that looks like but i remember being in the car with my aunt we were on our way to the grocery store going down the hill i will never forget the street and it came on the radio for the first time that reports that lynn bias was dead and that was the first time that i felt like at 12 years old i had felt mourning I hadn't had any deaths in my family. I had a grand, my grandmother and grandfather had passed away before I was born. Um, but that was the first experience of mourning for me that I feel like I had. I mean, I instantly started crying because, you know, here's a guy who had just gotten drafted. He did, you know, he was the Michael Jordan before Michael Jordan. Mm -hmm. yeah. And, you know, he, he was in the papers and, you know, I remember him playing him, you know, having these unbelievable games against Duke and North Carolina back then. And, 
you know, it was it was a very, very sad moment. And then I heard about it in a car with my aunt, and my dad took me and my brother to the funeral. We didn't go inside, but we drove past the funeral um, the day he had his funeral um, just to pay our respects. And then, obviously, you know, as books came out and stories came out, I followed every single thing. And that was just a, a tragic family dynamic because, you know, his brother ended up getting um, shot in a homicide in the D.C. area, and then his mom and dad ended up being advocates for gun violence and things like that. But, um, yeah, that was one of those times that you remember in your life that you'll never forget where you were um, when you heard the news about that. Yeah, for me it was Hank Gathers. I remember the hotel room I was in, the color of the bedspread, all of those things. Yeah. But Len Bias, Len, yeah. Len Bias was a big one as well. Yeah, people, I mean, it's amazing how people still talk about that around, you know, at home to this day about, you know, you get into arguments for the best all time and it never fails. You know, if Lynn Bias would have lived, he would have been in that argument. So Was he Damasa he or Dunbar? Was he... he was Dunbar. Dunbar, that which is Baltimore, right? Uh, no, I th- you know Dun- what? Don't quote me on that. Dunbar, Don't yeah. quote me on okay. that. You might have to, <laughs> may even have to look, look that up. But, yeah. um, I mean, obviously I started following him once he you know, went to Maryland and did all, you know, he was a freak. (laughs) I'd never seen a player like that before. Great player. Jamel Elliott is the associate athletic director uh, for the National Sea Club at the University of Connecticut. Jamel, Jamel, thanks so much for taking time to talk to me today. Of course. Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate the time. Time now to assign your reading for the week. If you've listened before, you know I like to connect our guests to some work being done in academia. Last week, we talked to Polish actor Andre Nieman, and I pointed you in the direction of some work on Polish fandom. Well, I hadn't uh, planned to go back to that well again, but there is an interesting article co-authored by Simon Leachin of Washington State University and Anarata Jakubowska of Adam Mikowitz University in Poznan, Poland, about the differences between the coverage of men's and women's basketball in that country, especially around the European championships. Still trying to get access to it, but as someone who spent a lot of time in Poland organizing basketball tournaments, the abstract alone has left me wanting more. By the way, gaining access to academic journals can be tough. In fact, I'm still trying to figure it out myself. I assumed I would be given some sort of magic wand when I enrolled in a PhD program that would give me access to all this stuff. I may still get one, but it hasn't come in the mail yet. Um, some of it you're not going to be able to get to without paying some exorbitant fee. Uh, even if you just Google the names of the researchers, you can usually find some of their stuff open to the public. You may even find talks they've done on YouTube or podcast interviews. Hopefully you'll get something out of it. When I can, I'll provide direct links to their work. Next week, we'll be talking about the greatest soccer club in the world, the Super Hoops of West London, Queens Park Rangers. Until then, check me out on social media at Study of Sport and on my website, studyofsport.com. See you next time.